In our last episode, we talked about the importance of having fun. For today's episode, we're going to take a hard right turn and talk about the complete opposite of fun, war. Simply put, war is hell. We've talked about the war in Afghanistan on this show, but never the Vietnam War. And today we hear from Mark Moyer, author of the legendary 2006 book, Triumph Forsaken, which covered the Vietnam War from 1954 to 1965. Today, January 10th, he has released the second book in this trilogy, Triumph Regained, which covers the pivotal years of 1965 to 1968 in the war. This book is heavy, both in subject matter and in actual weight. It is 720 pages long, but it is a remarkable account of these years in the war, told in such painstaking detail that you feel as though you are there. We talk about so much in this episode, from how Vietnam has largely been misunderstood and in the shadows, to the draft, to Americans' support for the war or eventually lack thereof. It's a conversation you won't want to miss if you're a student of history or not. Let me tell you a bit about Mark. He is a graduate of both Harvard and Cambridge. He holds the William P. Harris Chair in Military History at Hillsdale College with former academic appointments at the U.S. Marine Corps University and Texas A&M University, just to name a couple. He has written six previous books on military history, diplomatic history, grand strategy, leadership, and international development, and has written articles for outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and many more. I am excited for you to learn more about this part of history today. Take a listen. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here and excited to talk, as I just told you offline, about something as as a student of history I don't know as much as I want to know about, and that's the Vietnam War. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. So Triumph Regained covers the years 1965 to 1968. It's the sequel to your fantastic Triumph Forsaken which covered 1954 to 1965 in Vietnam. So how in these three years from 1965 to 1968 was, as the title suggests, triumph regained in this war? And maybe it's best to start off by walking us through on a high level 1954 to 1965 and maybe tell us where the story picks up in the new book. Right. Yes. To understand what was regained, you have to see what was lost. Right. In the first volume, you very briefly starts in 54 with the division of Vietnam into North and South with the North under the control of the communist Ho Chi Minh and the South under the control of the pro-American No Dinh Diem. And the war really gets going in 1960 with an insurgency in the South. And I argue that after some initial stumbles, the South Vietnamese government actually got its act together in 1962 and was doing very well in 1963 when suddenly a calamitous coup took place, which the Americans actually helped precipitate. And it turned out to have the opposite effect of what was hoped. And the war goes downhill rapidly starting the end of 1963. So the remainder of 
Triumph Forsaken goes up until the middle of 1965. And it's at that point that the Johnson administration has to face a decision of, do we intervene in this war and commit our ground troops, or do we sit back and let our ally fall to the North Vietnamese? And at the very end, President Johnson decides July of 1965, he is going to intervene in the ground war. So that's where we pick up in the second volume. Mm -hmm. So I start looking at the first battles that the United States fights in late 1965 and very successfully. And then I take it through the next few years. So what happens in the next few years is that the Americans reverse the military tide. They inflict great losses on the North Vietnamese, and they're able to do this while still maintaining public support at, at home to a, to, greater, to a greater degree than people have appreciated. Well, absolutely. And that was probably one of the most revelatory parts of the book is, so I was born, I'll, you know, date myself in, in, a, in a young way, which I don't often feel young anymore. I'm 36, but I was born in 1986. So I, I was not alive during this period. And from what history will tell you is that it, it feels as though the war was never supported. Right. And that that it never had public support. But and we'll talk about this in a minute, but how I, I learned through your book that that really the support continued through the end of 1968, which is surprising to me. And again, we'll we'll touch on that in a second. But, you know, again, on a high level, because this book is 720 pages. So there's a lot here. But, you know, on and listeners read this book. It is fascinating. I mean, you feel like you were there in the conflict, but what made those three years of 65 to 68 pivotal in the Vietnam War? Because the war lasted 20 years. So the what what was it about these three years that were so pivotal? Well, first, it was the turning of the, the military tide. And, you know, when American troops first get there, no one's exactly sure how this is going to turn out because the Americans haven't faced the North Vietnamese ever before. And the North Vietnamese have been faring very well. Uh, but American technology, firepower, and uh, the courage of American soldiers uh, turns things around and does so pretty rapidly. And um, the full details of that haven't really been known either, which is one of the main points of the book. But we now know from North Vietnamese sources that uh, have not been cited before just how effective American weaponry was. Uh, we're also able to see, in a way we haven't before, the impact of American military power on the enemy, because there's this perception that the enemy was supremely patient, and it was, was just a fool's errand to think that just by fighting them for a few years, we could convince them to desist. But we now know that, in fact, these actions in these few years force fundamental changes in how the North Vietnamese think about the war. And in fact, they are by 1967 so frustrated and impatient that they decide to launch the momentous Tet Offensive of yeah. 1968. And tell us, you know, for those that might not know what the Tet, of course, I, I do now because I've just finished your book, but the Tet Offensive was huge in this time. So can you explain what that was? Yeah, so the North Vietnamese in 1967, having taken such horrific losses and being unable to inflict any defeats on the United States, 
decides that fundamental change is necessary. And so instead of just continuing to fight battles in rural and unpopulated areas, they're going to launch an urban offensive. They're going to go after the big South Vietnamese cities. Mm -hmm. And they are convinced that the population really secretly supports them. And so once they attack the cities, the population is going to rise up. And this will lead then quickly to their victory in the cities and it will force the Americans to leave. Now, very opposite of that happens that people do not rise up and the North Vietnamese and their South Vietnamese Viet Cong, they are now forced to hold ground, which they don't usually do. So when they're fighting out in the jungle or the mountains, they can flee when things get bad. But now they're trying to hold ground and this exposes them to devastating American and South Vietnamese firepower and they take horrific losses. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I'm a student of history. I I really think that Vietnam is misunderstood. And and I and what I really appreciated about this book is that it really reframed the conflict for me. I think many would argue that Vietnam was a so-called failure because we did not emerge out of it successful as maybe we did in World War II, for example. But you say not so fast, and hence the book's title, Triumph Regained. So can you kind of walk our listeners through that? Because I think you show that there actually were more gains in this conflict than maybe we give it credit for. Yeah, that's right. And it's also worth looking at from a broader perspective, this is a Cold War struggle, and this is not just a local conflict, but part of this great struggle against communism, which we now know, especially in hindsight, to have been disastrous for humanity in, in a variety of ways and also harmful to U.S. interests. And so the project in South Vietnam, I think, is in many ways similar to what we saw in South Korea. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. is supporting allies. And it's worth remembering, too, that President Kennedy, when he gets involved, he's looking at a number of countries in the region as to where the U.S. should make a stand. And he sees South Vietnam as a place where the people actually are willing to fight. And so there really is a legitimate and valid ally there that is strongly anti-communist in many respects. And so, uh, as I said, we're making progress early in the 60s and then things go awry, but the stakes are still very high. And, you know, as I argue in the book, the events in Vietnam during this period have ramifications well beyond Vietnam and most especially in the country of Indonesia, which mm -hmm. the end of 65 goes through this cataclysmic coup that ultimately is extremely beneficial for the United States. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking compared to, again, just to bring up for comparison, sake, World War II, Vietnam, I feel, is not discussed as much. And, and why do you think this war has been in the shadows for so long? Do you think it is because many might say that we, quote unquote, lost the war, even though that's kind of a, an elementary take on it? Do you, why, why is Vietnam remained so largely undiscussed like this? That's an excellent question. You have to look, I think, at what's going on during the war. And as I mentioned in the book, in 1967, you have a sudden shift in elite opinion, not the public as a whole, but college campuses in particular 
there's this sudden turn against the war, and this is driven by changes in the draft that put more college-age students on the line. And you also have a generational change with the baby boom generation coming into college campuses. And so my belief is that the turn against the war among much of elite opinion is driven more by the draft than by what's actually going on in Vietnam, because a lot of these same people were supporting the war until this happened. And so I think this whole generation of baby boomers that did not go to Vietnam were invested in proving that this was a bad war because you don't want to skip the draft if the if it's actually a good war. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's guided, I think, and misguided a lot of information. And hmm. they for a long time were more vocal, but now, you know, once it became clear that communism was really not so good, they've kind of quieted down. And the Americans who served in Vietnam are just uh, they've never really had a strong voice, which is one of the reasons I wrote this book. That's so fascinating. That is an incredibly interesting point. I want to quote, I love quoting authors to authors, and I find this passage from the book just really revelatory, and it puts me in, it, it, it helps me get to know better the, the men of this time period. So I want to read this passage really quickly. It says, the young men of the 1960s had been reared on America's struggles, sacrifices, and triumphs in World War II. As boys, they had found role models in the movies of John Wayne and Robert Mitchum, the books of Audie Murphy and Richard Tregesis, and the stories of fathers and uncles who had fought in Europe or the Pacific. They had spent holidays watching veterans parade down Main Street wearing uniforms and medals that testified to patriotism and manliness. Many of them volunteered for the military because they considered it a duty and an honor for a man to risk his life for his country. That sentiment was particularly strong in the West and South, owing to the high esteem for the military among the descendants of frontiersmen and Confederates, though it could also be found in regions where martial culture was less in evidence. Among the young men who were not excited enough about automatic weapons and jungle combat to join the armed forces voluntarily, some entered the military through conscription, which had been introduced in 1940 and had continued at reduced levels during the periods of peace before and after the Korean War. So that's ending your, your passage. So conscription or the draft, is, as you said a moment ago, how did the draft play into Vietnam and how it was perceived? I know you started to touch on that, but I, I find this very interesting. Yes, well, if if you look at um, the elite campuses again, which I think is where most of this tumult unfolds, there's actually pretty strong support for the war initially, and it's only in 67 when the rules change. Basically, what happens is they get rid of exemptions for going to graduate school. So up until this point, af after your undergraduate time, you could go to graduate school and and avoid going to Vietnam. And I think, again, that that caused a big shift. And I think you see in the baby boom generation, you know, the, the parents of that generation had fought World War II, and they were expecting that by raising their children in this unprecedented affluence, that there would be, you know, a renewed gratitude. Uh, but as, uh, you know, I think we see throughout history, sometimes, if you give uh, kids too much, they uh, they become spoiled. And so I see I think we see a bit of the spoiled brat syndrome in that you mm -hmm. this generation, which, again, had unprecedented affluence, is less interested than its predecessors in patriotic sacrifice. Now, that's not true of all of them. And a lot of baby boomers do go 
into the military and do fight in Vietnam, but you have this massive cleavage within the baby boom generation and you know, the baby boomers who don't go to Vietnam, you know, become the dominant voices in journalism and academia and the media. And so they are the ones who largely will write the history of, of Vietnam and the decades that come. Right. Because the people that write history are, are the people, you know, the people with the loudest voices are the people that write history. Right. And so that, I, that that's very interesting to me. Another thing I found interesting, we, we touched on this a minute ago, is that American culture sustained public support for the war through the end of 1968. So through the end of Triumph Regained of this, of this book, which, as I said before, as someone who was born long after the war ended, I don't think of the war as having had 14 years of relative support from 1954 to 1968. We only think of the opposition. So why did the tide turn against Vietnam? What was the clinch point for, for the lack of support? Yeah, well, support will decline in the Nixon period, which is the period I'll cover in the final volume of this. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's a complicated story as well. And it doesn't decline as much as is often thought. Um, you know, Nixon, as I noted at the end of this book, people have high expectations of Nixon as being sort of a leading anti-communist. But for a number of reasons, when he comes in, he will not push the war as hard as expected. And he will actually later admit that he made some bad decisions in 1969, but he does you know, end up in 1972 standing behind the South Vietnamese and holding on. So there still is some, and still, still, there's still considerable support for the general cause, even in the latter stages of the war. But you do have uh, Watergate is a watershed moment in all of this because it will take away much of Nixon's power and, and empower those who are against him and they will try to use Vietnam as a weapon. Mm -hmm. But as I say, even in the latter part of the war, there's a lot of misconception about popular opinion and you know, Vietnam veterans, I think in particular, were distraught and appalled at the way that the United States ultimately abandoned South Vietnam in 1975. And I, I speak to a lot of veterans and they, they are very pleased when historians take a more realistic look and look at the facts rather than a sort of predetermined conclusion about what happened. So Triumph Forsaken, the first volume was published in 2006. I've got to know as a fellow writer myself, did it take the full 17 years to write Triumph Regained? I mean, as I mentioned, the book is over 700 pages and it's just such a massive undertaking of research for you. Well, I worked on it intermittently. I published several other books during that time, and and I ended up getting drawn in various ways towards the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And given how immediate they were, uh, and the fact that I was working for much of this period for U.S. military institutions, that kind of slowed things down. And I also spent some time working in the uh, Trump administration at the U.S. Agency for International Development. But it has been a very long and lengthy process. And the first volume I spent about seven years and had more time then than during the subsequent period. But I've concluded after 
you know, writing a number of books and reading many others that you know, the quality of a book depends on how much time and effort you put into it. And this being such a controversial topic, I wanted to be extremely thorough in the research. And so the the footnotes are very lengthy and extensive. Mm -hmm. And I knew this was going to be controversial as well as the first one was. And so you want to make sure you have information to back up everything you say. Mm -hmm. And so it, it certainly was involve more research than uh, most historical books of this type. Sure, sure. I want to talk for a moment about President Johnson. So Lyndon B. Johnson was commander-in-chief for all three of the years in Triumph Regain, 65 to 68. We do have a presidential election in November of 1968, which we'll talk about in a second. But how was Johnson as a wartime president? Johnson gets into the war after making some critical mistakes in late 64 and early 65 and he incorrectly partly because of the election of 64 he conveys to the north vietnamese the impression that the united states isn't going to fight for vietnam you know one point spain specifically he's not going to send american boys to fight in asia so he puts and, and sort of in, invites north vietnamese in uh, aggression into south vietnam and then ultimately, of course, he does decide to fight for South Vietnam, and but he's doesn't really know very much. And for much of his presidency, he defers to the judgment of Robert McNamara, who I argue is responsible for many of the worst decisions, including the policy of gradual escalation of the bombing of North Vietnam, which we now know to have been uh, terribly misguided and for refusing to send American troops in, into the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos and Cambodia. And Johnson, one thing I do give him credit for is that towards the end of his presidency, he begins to realize that McNamara is badly mistaken on the war, and he will ultimately decide to ease McNamara out as Secretary of Defense and to bring in Clark Clifford. And one of the other myths of the Vietnam War that I address is this idea that you know, Johnson was basically disengaging the United States from the war in 1968. And in fact, he's not doing that. And he keeps US troop levels constant. And while he, he does undertake some bombing pauses, those are not really that militarily significant. So he redeemed himself a bit in the final year of his presidency. Mm -hmm. Well, then in the final year of his presidency, which is 1968, we have the presidential election at the end of that year, which, of course, Nixon wins. So what role did that presidential election play in the future of the war? Yes, yeah, so that election is emblematic, first of all, of the general American support for the war, because, again, we have this false notion that supports declining. But you have, on the one hand, Nixon running for the Republicans, and he is a staunch anti-communist. And on the other hand, you have a competition between the factions of the Democratic Party. There, there's sizable conservative, moderate, and liberal factions. And at the 68 convention, uh, the liberals are pushing for an anti-war plank, essentially negotiate, withdraw American troops, uh, force the South Vietnamese to accept communists into their government. 
But that actually does not gain traction with most of the party. The moderates and conservatives of the Democratic Party oppose it, and Hubert Humphrey, the nominee, ultimately refuses to accept that liberal platform. So both candidates are in favor of continuing the war. Now, they're both interested in downsizing American involvement over time and turning more of it to the South Vietnamese. But there is this commitment to staying in Vietnam. There is not really much sentiment for a rapid withdrawal because people recognize there's Cold War stakes. Uh, abandoning its ally would lead to great trouble in the region and also undermine American credibility mm -hmm. as a superpower as a whole. So this is a tough question, but you are the expert here. So what do you think is, at the end of the day, the most misunderstood part of Vietnam? What do we as modern American culture get wrong about this war? I think the biggest mistake is to misrepresent America's South Vietnamese ally as some sort of corrupt reactionary problem. Now, certainly there's corruption. There is oftentimes autocracy, although they do also hold some elections. But the comparison I like to draw is to the other two main conflicts that U.S. gets involved in in, in Asia during this period. One is that between within China, which then becomes China versus Taiwan, and then in Korea, North versus South Korea. You know, both Taiwan and South Korea also had governments that were autocratic at the time and were accused of corruption and had various other problems. But if you look today at Taiwan and South Korea, they are vibrant, prosperous democracies, far more prosperous and democratic than China and North Korea. And I think we would have seen the same in South Vietnam because the United States promotes a model of development that is much superior to what China and the Soviets were able to offer. And we're fortunate now that North Korean, excuse me, South Korea and Taiwan are our biggest allies, or among our biggest allies in the region. And I think, as I said, South Vietnam could have been the same. And I think they get unfairly maligned because people are certain people are so invested in the notion that we should never have been in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. It's all so fascinating to me. And we don't talk about history enough on the show. We we really should uh, should more. And, and just books like this compel me to no end. I just couldn't put your book down. And as we wind up our time together, um, I found this passage deeply interesting. It was one of many that I found deeply interested, deeply interesting and, and marked. It reads, Colin Powell, who served two tours in Vietnam and later became the first Black American to serve as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Secretary of State, recalled that the military appealed to him as a young man because its meritocracy and indifference to racial and ethnic identity provided Blacks unparalleled opportunities for advancement and leadership. You could not name in those days another profession where black men routinely told white men what to do and how to do it, Powell recounted. So I find that such an interesting take juxtapos juxtaposed with everything going on in the United States in the 1960s. Can you speak to Colin Powell's words there? Yes, it was, especially in the early part of Vietnam, considered uh, the most egalitarian institution. And 
we do start to see some problems emerging very late in this period in 68 there is just the start of what will become greater racial tensions within the military which uh, are driven by what's going on at home and uh, push for black separatism and all the difficulties that, that come from that but the military you know is able ultimately i think to rebound better than that and you know until recently i think was still considered a model of racial integration it's only in very recent times where we've seen this resurgence of identity politics that i think we're starting to see some more serious problems emerge uh, because the political left has introduced uh, has tried to introduce things like critical race theory into the military and to go back to judging people based on their color and who is and who isn't a privileged group. And so I know a lot of there's great concern within the military today about the harmful impact of trying to um, return to a period where racial identity is a significant part of how we view people in the armed forces. You mentioned this briefly a minute ago, but I want to confirm it. So obviously Vietnam did not end in 1968. We we can't expect a third book covering the rest of the war until 1975. Is that what I heard you say earlier? Yes, that is correct. So that's what I'm working on now. And again, as I said, it, the to get to the same level of quality I've had in the first two books, it's going to take a lot of research. So it's not going to be out you know, quickly, but it will it will come out once I've been able to to complete that research. And this, uh, you know, when I first started this, I thought I could do it all in one volume, the whole war, but <laughs> that would have been like a 2000 page book. Yeah. So, yeah, I figured out that just because there's so much that's not known and there's such a thirst for information that that it wasn't feasible to do it in one volume, or certainly not to do it justice. And I think you know, readers will see that that this time period is that's covered in this book is deserving of 700 pages. Oh, absolutely. Stuff. Absolutely. There wasn't a there wasn't a page or a chapter that I would have taken out. It was it was all it was all very it's it's 700 pages, but it's also incredibly succinct at the same time. And my last question for you is what do you hope readers take away from Triumph Regained? There's several things. I think probably first and foremost, I want them to understand that this was not some sort of fool's errand and some sort of crazy idea that had no merit and that the war was, as John Kerry once put it, the biggest nothing in history. I think that it's worth understanding that it was a worthy cause that that there were some missed opportunities, uh, but that the United States generally acquitted itself well, which I think is especially important to Vietnam veterans and their families, the people lost loved ones yeah. in this conflict, so that they understand that this was actually was worthwhile in many respects. And it's also important to Americans in general because we conceive of our identity based in large part on our history. And so if we want to view ourselves as uh, 
in a positive light and something that that we want to invest ourselves in the future, it's good that we understand what has been done well by Americans as well as what's been done poorly. And it's certainly some of the Americans in this don't come across very well. And uh, in general, you know, we as a country are never going to be perfect, but same time, it's important to know when Americans have achieved important things and have committed themselves to noble causes and not just focusing on the negative aspects, which is what uh, many people in this country, I think, nowadays are doing. Mm-hmm. Well, there's about a thousand other questions I could ask you and listeners, if you're compelled, as I know that you no doubt are triumph regained. The Vietnam War 1965 to 1968 is out January 10th. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Mark, and thank you to all who served our country so selflessly. Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968, is out today, January 10th. We'll be back later this week with a great conversation about getting unstuck in your life. And next week, we have ESPN's Stephen A. Smith on the show to talk about his memoir, as well as a fantastic conversation about making our relationships better. So much good that you won't want to miss. We'll talk soon.